Welcome to the So F podcast. Hello, welcome to the So Aft podcast with me, Enor Adeogun, a multimedia journalist with a passion for all things African. On today's episode, the time has come to discuss gender roles in the motherland. Uganda's president has said a woman's place is in the kitchen. Should we be irritated or more understanding of different cultures? Also, we're going to revisit the situation in Cameroon. Separatists are being blamed for the kidnapping of school children and the death of an American missionary. But Ambazonians are blaming the Cameroonian government. We'll hear from both sides. Today's spotlight is on Les Isaac, OBE. He's the CEO of Ascension Trust. That's the governing body of street pastors. He's a man that has done and continues to do so much for the community, helping to get knives off the streets of London and people out of gangs. But first, here are the headlines. If you ever needed an example of why it's a bad idea to keep nude pics or videos on your phone, South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba is your man. He's resigned after a video of him masturbating was widely circulated online. He accused South Africa's security services of hacking his phone and releasing the 13-second video, which he says was for his wife. Now, I am not judging him for making the video. He has absolutely every right to, and it's bang out of order for someone to invade his privacy and share it. But people, please, what you get up to in your sheets is up to you, but be wise. Delete those pics and videos permanently. If you have an iPhone, there's an option to delete immediately. I only know because a friend told me. A video of Nigerian Nollywood actor Aremu Afolayan complaining about how he was treated by security officers at Lagos's international airport has gone viral. The actor allegedly was asked to pay for his family to enter the Muratala Mohammed International Airport. Here's the clip. First of all, in my entire life, I have never seen a country as useless as this country. In my entire life that I've been in existence, How can I come to the airport? First of all, you are telling me to pay with my family, for my family to come into the airport and you are telling me that you are paying, uh, uh, we cannot allow your family to come in because of security conscious. What security do you have in Nigeria? Tell me the security. If the bad people are going to come to this airport, won't they destroy the airport? What security? They should fire all those useless bastard immigration, whoever they are, on that doorstep. Why will I come to the airport with my family and I'm, I'm not going to be able to go into the airport? It's so frustrating and alarming. What, when are you going to change everything? What is wrong with you people? What the, my sister here is about to travel. She's not a citizen of Nigeria. Her passport, a French passport was given to her by French embassy. And you're telling me the passport is fake. How can you say a passport is fake when you can verify the passport from your office? 
Tanzanian officials seem to be on somewhat of a roll when it comes to trying to force its inhabitants to uphold a moral code it's decided is appropriate. Its council that regulates the arts, which is called Basata, has banned a brand new hit song. Mwanza by Ray Vani and Diamond Platinums. Basata said the lyrics are, and these are their words, encouraging sexual thrill. So it's been prohibited from being played on any TV and radio station in Tanzania. Well, I am recording this from the UK. So here's the song that's got the council's knickers in a bit of a twist. Thousands of residents of Pibor in South Sudan's Boma state are set to be relocated from their homes to make way for the drilling of oil. The Boma state government have actually came that the relocation is in the interest of the residents as the exploration of crude oil is likely to cause environmental problems such as the contamination of drinking water. The government is already preparing the new site to ensure basic services such as roads, water, health and schools are in place before the big move. I'll be keeping my eye out on this though. I don't know why something tells me that this is one to watch. Africa's longest suspension bridge in Maputo, Mozambique has opened thanks to a huge investment made by Africa's new colonial masters. Sorry, I mean the Chinese government. Locals will now have to pay $2.60 to cross. The Slow Ave Podcast. So I want to discuss gender roles in Africa because I was very disappointed, but sadly not too surprised to read sexist comments made by Uganda's president recently. Yawari Museveni told young entrepreneurs that, and these are his words, it is now 45 years with Mama Janet. I have never stepped in the kitchen. That is how it should be. Wow. Okay, I get it. He's 74, he's the president. It's hardly that surprising he has such old-fashioned views. But here's why his comments are really disappointing. He has championed the inclusion of women in the country's economic development. He said in the past that women shouldn't allow household chores to stop them becoming businesswomen. Now, I want to be as open-minded as possible on this podcast. And I want us all to be able to be sensitive and understanding to different cultures. The president's comments were both criticised and defended by Ugandans on social media. On the one hand, people highlighted the fact that cooking isn't a woman's job to do. It's a life skill that all men and women should learn. My son is two and he's already helped me to bake. I will teach him how to cook and that will in no way compromise that he is a male and him thinking that he is a male. But on the other hand, people also defended the president, claiming in Ugandan culture, it's regarded as a taboo for a man to cook. 
I respect culture 100%. I really do. But I believe that when tradition encroaches on someone's right to be happy or independent or to make their own decisions, that's where a line needs to be drawn. Don't defend FGN with tradition. Don't tell me a 14-year-old can give consent to marry a man old enough to be her father. And don't tell me depriving a woman of an education so she can keep to tradition and take on the job of serving her house, husband and kids. Don't say that's all okay just because of tradition. I may seem slightly dramatic here, but the mindset of a woman's place being in the kitchen is just so damaging for females and the males that we will bring up hearing this nonsense. I am a mother, a wife. I'm a really hardworking woman as well. And while I was in bed thinking of topics for this episode, my husband, Nigerian husband, as in born and bred in Nigeria, really, really Nigerian husband, was downstairs cooking for us. And as grateful as I am that I haven't married someone that would expect me to somehow divide the same amount of hours that he has, but achieve working, cooking, cleaning, looking after my son, etc., etc., without him lifting a finger, I don't feel like his help is worth any more than mine. I really don't. He's not my son's babysitter, neither is he my house guest. Why should I, just because I'm a woman, expect to pull my weight any more than he does. I don't. When I had Eli and moved back to Nigeria, my husband literally took over the cooking completely. I think he got tired of me forgetting that I was cooking rice and having to call me to remind me to turn it off. But in all seriousness, he saw how overwhelmed I was and he helped as he should. Now, this isn't a male bashing segment. Don't get me wrong. I do take pride in cooking for my family. And I know that many women do as well. I just don't like this whole expectation for a woman to have to cook for everyone or the lack of appreciation if she does or the over the top celebration for a man when he does. I love the fact that my husband helps. So, you know, he is the person that edits this podcast. So he's going to be hearing this. So shout out to you, boo. Anyway. I set off to find out if men and women in Nigeria are on the same page as me and my husband. It is very, very important because right from day one, the wives are known to be the head of the kitchen. But at the same time, they are not, I would should I say they should, they, they are not really the head. They, well, they know more of the kitchen, but the husband can also help cook meals in the house. Take for instance, a family where the wife and the husband work like daily jobs, nine to five. If the if the if the husband if the husband happens to come come in early, the husband can do the wife a favor by cooking the meal if he can cook. You get if he can cook, he can do the wife a favor by cooking the meal and contributing. So I believe it is very important for the wife to cook, but at the same time. The, the, the husband should be helpful. I'd like to start by saying that I am a feminist. Yes, I'd like to establish that fact. But regardless 
I do feel like wives should cook for their husbands. Husbands deserve to eat their wives' food, especially if their schedules are not like as tight as their husbands. That's like the only condition there for me. The schedule must not be tight because if it is tight and, and if I'm tired, what I just want to do is give a cool shower and and just crash, you know? But if I am free or freer than my husband, then I would love to cook for him. I mean, I've cooked for, I've cooked for the craziest of guys. I've cooked for people that did not deserve to eat my food. I mean, why not my husband? For me, I think it's of great importance that a woman cooks for a husband because it's one of her duties and responsibility as a wife. If she doesn't do it, tell me, who will? House help, mother or mother-in-law, or the husband should eat out? No. Like the old saying, food is a gateway to a man's heart. If she wants to be the gatekeeper, she must do the needful by preparing his meals. So I think it's of great importance that a woman cooks for a husband. Very, very important that she does it. You know, I think the more important question is, how important is it to the husband that the wife cooks? People put um, different, um, different importance or ascribe different importance on cooking by their spouses. Some husbands love to cook naturally and want to collaborate with their wives. They find it romantic cooking with them. Some people are more um, traditional and prefer the wife to do all the cooking. So it's basically an individual thing. But if you ask me, I think cooking is more like, yes, a woman should know how to cook. It's fundamental because you're going to pass it on to your kids. And in as much as the man could cook, it's always nice when it's collaborative between spouses. I think that creates a more healthy family. I think it's pretty important for wives to cook for their husband. I think it's pretty important for women, for women rather, to cook for their man. It makes no sense. As in, imagine me staying now, yeah? I want my, come on, come on, cook for my man. Are you okay? Where are you coming from? It makes no sense. I'm always pushing for, you know, guys helping around in the kitchen. It's not bad. I don't want a guy that's totally useless, that can't do anything for me in the kitchen. I mean, even if you can't cook, yeah? Offer to do something. But all in all, a woman must cook for a man. That's just it. The Soul Ave Podcast. At least 79 students were abducted from their school by armed men in the northwest of Cameroon over a week ago. They've since been freed, yay. However, it's still not clear who was behind the kidnappings, as no one has claimed responsibility. In the video that's been widely circulated, some of the children, who were all boys, are filmed by one of the kidnappers as they're ordered to say their names and where they're from. They're also told to repeat the phrase, I was taken from school last night by the Amber Boys. I don't know where I am. Amber is short for Amberzonia, the name of the new country that the separatists want to create. I've spoken about an alleged genocide of Amberzonians in a past episode to someone that's a minister in the separatist government. And we're going to hear from him again in today's episode about a separate incident that's similar to this, as both the Cameroonian government and Amberzonian separatists are blaming each other for being responsible. While the separatists are being blamed for the Bamenda's Presbyterian secondary school kidnapping, the separatists say they are actually being framed to discredit them. Key facts to point out. 
At one point in the video, a voice in the background, which is believed to be one of the kidnappers, says what sounds like the French equivalent of you're wasting your time. This would point towards the Cameroonian government being behind it, especially because the boys are made to say it was the Amber boys that did it. Seems like a bit of a setup. But it could also be argued that the Amber boys really did do it. And because perhaps as it would be expected while you're living in Cameroon that you could be bilingual. Who knows? Really, who knows? A bloody fight for the region's independence has escalated in recent years. English-speaking Cameroonians or Ambazonians want their own state. They make up 20% of the country and feel that they're poorly treated on all levels by the French-speaking majority. But it's complicated. And after you hear arguments from both sides of the debate, I'd love to know what you think, whose side you're on, and even if, like me, you're just confused. Before the children were released, I spoke with a local Cameroonian Presbyterian pastor that didn't want to be named for security reasons. How are you and people in your community feeling after this kidnapping? Um, there is a lot of sense of insecurity because um, since the beginning of the crisis, every party involved in the crisis has been assuring the local community of their security, their stay, and the hope that they are able to continue to work effectively to ensure that uh, they carry on safely. But the problem that is in the environment is that once you go against the rules of any of the parties, that the, the, the fighting parties, it is easy to uh, get attacked from any side, especially at very ungodly hours. For example, um, the, the secessionists advocate for no school, that everything should be grounded until they are sure that they have, their, their, their opinion is given before they are able to uh, formulate their own uh, curriculum and they can take their children to school with respect to what they actually want. And so they see any person who is advocating for schools to resume, even in this third year of no schools resumption, um, they see any person who is attempting to um, encourage school resumption as uh, a black leg and a supporter of uh, the regime in power. And on the other hand as well, if you're in a small community where uh, everybody knows everybody and uh, your children are not going to school, you are now a victim to the administration and the, the military of the country. So there is a kind of confusion and insecurity and people exactly don't know what actually to do. And that is uh, the background of why so many people have relocated either to relatives already living in the French region or some of them who are closer to Nigeria, have uh, crossed over to Nigeria, either independently or also because they have sent... Um, they are in the refugee camps or something like that. So right. there's a kind of a fear of insecurity actually among the people. Has anything like this happened before with, you know, a, a school being targeted? Yeah. Um, before the schools actually, um, before the schools actually uh, got uh, closed down again, there have been several attacks and even a, a principal of a college, a Presbyterian principal, it should still uh, be in the hospital by now receiving treatment. And unfortunately, it is very, very difficult to ascertain who is responsible because um, you never tell and everybody who comes comes under this place and you don't know if it's the secessionist party or if the military of the country. It's difficult to ascertain. So the, the most... Uh, 
people get on social media is attack of one party to the other. But there's, a, there's been a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, attacks in in several places, in minor cases, or in very public and big situations in which uh, they have been they've made news on social media and others have touched in some local threads and people just run back into their hidings and can stay there for a while. Because yes, speaking of social media, if you on Twitter, even looking at from the separatist side, they're putting up images and, and talking about things that are happening where they're being attacked and then hearing from you, it's like it just seems that it's all it's hard to know what's what's actually going on. What is the way forward? How how confident are you that the army will be able to find these children? Well, um, it's that that will be a difficult question to say because the reason for the kidnaps are always very different depending on the situation at hand and uh, the demands of those who kidnap are also um, always very different. And sometimes it's only like, for example, if it's just a warning that uh, the children should not go, they may be uh, uh, tortured, maybe likely or severely, and then they are released. Or if, it, if, it's, uh, if it's a capture of those who are in need of other things, they may begin to ask for ransoms and things like that. So it's, it's difficult to know exactly what will be demanded um, for the ransom, even though uh, before now, there are also some rumors on social media that... Um, uh, uh, they kidnapped, were released, and uh, but this this back and forth information is always coming coming on social media, and it's difficult to trust the media so much, so much. But it's not like all on media is false, but uh, there are also impressions, hopes, and uh, and ideas from people who which override the facts. And so for now, I am sure that uh, we just we just keep uh, hopeful and prayerful that. Um, uh, they can be found and all all of them found because there have been also other extrajudicial killings that have uh, not have not actually having anything to do with school. I mean, abduction from houses and shooting on the streets, and so it's difficult to relate really the situation. It's difficult. Another incident occurred in the country two weeks ago that again raised the question of who is behind the extreme violence in the country: the government or the separatists. An American missionary working in Cameroon was shot in the head and killed in front of his family less than a month since he arrived in the country. Charles Wesco from Indiana was going shopping with his wife, one of his sons and another person when the car they were travelling in came under attack. It happened near the town of Bamenda in the northwest, a region that has been the scene of fighting between the English-speaking separatists and the French-speaking government fighters. Again, each side blamed each other. As soon as I found out, I got in touch with Chris Anu, Secretary for Communications and IT for the Federal Republic of Ambazonia. When I saw the story, obviously because we've spoken before, in my mind I was thinking, who would be behind this? Like, why would anyone want to kill a, a missionary? Well, uh, the information we have received is that the Cameroon uh, military soldiers uh, who have been uh, fighting uh, Ambazonians in that locality uh, did the shooting, apparently thinking that uh, the person driving the, the vehicle was Ambazonia. 
Now, this is not strange. What happened isn't strange to us because this has happened again and again and again. This time, unfortunately, they just got a wrong person. So was it, is the, the driver of um, the vehicle, what's um, their condition? Apparently, we have learned that the victim was the driver. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. He was the one driving. Uh, they struck him through the windshield so, and the bullet, so and the he, bullet hit his head. Right, so he's, is he African-American then, I'm guessing? Oh, uh, no, he's a white American. So how, how would they think he's from Amazonia? Well, that's a uh, uh, way to stand at a distance and just suspect anything. You can do anything, right? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm new. Who was driving uh, the vehicle, they probably stood because the vehicle was moving. And through the whole day, there are other from that uh, community that they have been shooting animals. were shot dead even before this incident. So things have got that bad that, you know, people, they could just be shooting, not even knowing who's driving. It's just indiscriminately just shooting anyone in the area? Oh, yes. It's very, very common. Very, very common to just shoot. Uh, they, 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 they are not trained to have any regard for human rights. And so when they go into a community, they suspect you. They just shoot. They just they suspect anything. They just shoot again. Is uh, very maybe strange to you. It's not strange to us because we know their attitude over uh, over the years. Now, obviously, it's it's, it's it's really sad what's happened. That some. I mean, imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is. This is not strange uh, to us because, but we have seen situations where they move, the soldiers move into towns, move into villages. The people run away into the bushes, and they are still not satisfied. Instead of living, they burn down the towns and they burn down the villages. So it's not a, a surprise at all uh, for them to be shooting vehicles without even knowing. In fact, I was saying to somebody yesterday, uh, what if it was one of their ministers in that vehicle, and they shot him dead? Because I don't understand how Anybody would just see an, 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 an oncoming vehicle and uh, strike it with a bullet. What do you think is going to happen now? Because a lot, lot of people, what I'm hearing today, which is something you know that you talk about all the time on your Twitter feed as well, people are asking, what, what is going on in this region? What is Ambazonia asking these kind of questions? As sad as what happened is, this is going to grab the attention, isn't it, of the international community? To, to recognize that there are awful things going on. Well, I hope that it does. I hope that it, do, it does. Just as you've said, you've seen our cries on Twitter, on Facebook, the gory images that come out of that place on a daily basis and the world has paid a blind uh, eye to the uh, mayhem coming out of there. Uh, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, but we hope that somehow this could awaken uh, the West to what is going on in, 
a number is on here. Uh, I mean, they just had an election there two weeks ago. And the same West acknowledges uh, Mr. Beer as president. The French, the Americans, the British, they all acknowledge him as the president, as the winner of the election, when it is very clear, very, very clear, he did not win the election. So uh, we hope that some of these things can go to fight the hypocrisy that we see coming from Western leaders. The SOAF Spotlight. Today's spotlight is on Les Isaac OBE. He's the CEO of Ascension Trust, which is the governing body of street pastors. He helped put together street pastors in the UK in 2003. On the first night, 18 volunteers took to the streets of London. And since then, this initiative has grown to encompass a network of volunteers who engage with people on the streets to take care of them, listen to them and help them. To date, Ascension Trust has trained over 14,000 volunteers and has around 280 initiatives in the UK, as well as projects in several countries around the world. In recognition of the contribution that he's made to society, he was awarded an OBE by Her Majesty the Queen. I've interviewed him a number of times on Premier Christian Radio about the work that he does to take knives off our streets. But I was privileged on Tuesday to interview him in person at the Pan London Church's Serious Violence Summit at Southwark Cathedral. Some of my best conversations have happened pre-interview and Les and I had a great chat about his love for Nigeria, me looking Ibo, and the importance of keeping black British kids linked to their African and Caribbean culture. So I definitely need to get him on the podcast in the future because as you know, I'm very much a believer of sharing roots, tradition and culture with children. But I'm also passionate about seeing young people walk away from knife crime and things have got so crazy in London when it comes to knife violence. In the capital, there's been 116 homicides this year, including 69 fatal stabbings. Five of those occurred in a six-day period this month. I spoke to Les before he spoke at the summit. Violent crime in the capital, it's an issue that simply can't be ignored. The city's mayor has warned it could take a generation to solve, but could and should the church do anything to help? Well, I'm joined by Les Isaac, CEO of the Ascension Trust, the governing body for street passes. He's also one of the speakers today. Good afternoon, Les. I know you're a busy man, but what made you feel that this was a summit that you just had to be involved with? 
I think the, the, the problems that we are facing as a city is a vast problem and no one organization or one denomination could adequately respond to it. This summit is saying right across the Christian community, let's come together, let's look at the issues and let's look at how together we could, you know, bring a positive and a strong response to it. And we've spoken to you numerous occasions on Premier about this very issue, knife crime. Why is it a problem that doesn't only seem to be not going away, but getting worse? I think there's been a lack of serious response to this problem. Um, Before we started street passes, it used to be guns, drugs and gangs. And even then, I was saying, as one of the voices that was saying, listen, it's a problem that's endemic. It's a problem that's social. It's a problem that's been incubating for years. And what has happened is that, you know, the church has prayed about it and not really focused on it. Governments, successive governments haven't really addressed it. And so what we have is something that's been in incubation for many years. It's now come to fruition and it's going to take, and I, you know, I hear Sadiq Khan saying 10 years, you know, it could take 20 years. Um, and it all depends on how we come together and really look at it. We were talking about this is a public health response early this year. I'm glad to see that the government and the mayor's office have recognized that it is a public health. But I also believe that the church that has been really active for years in the city, I believe that it's a wake-up call for us to say, how do we bring expertise, skills, resources, so that together we could really give a major response to this? And how important is it for churches not to just try and tackle this individually in their parish or whatever, but together as as one body attacking this issue of knife crime? I think it's very important. I think that's the key for us. I think that there are some great initiatives taking place around the capital. Local congregations are doing things. Um, In the street pastors movement, we've got people reflecting right across the Christian community. And I think that we've got to harness that the expertise, the prayer, you know, the, the, the best practice. We've got to harness the, um, the outreaches that we're doing. We've got to harness that and really put it to good use within our boroughs, within our wards, within our parishes, across the city, so that we could look and see in five years' time. I think we could deal with it. Um, if we really together acknowledge that we could only do it together. I think we could do it. I really believe that. I'm optimistic about this. And I'm saying that if we could get that right together, we could do it. Let me also say this. I've been encouraged with the amount of Christians who are praying. Last night, I was out in the streets in Brixton with at least 15 folks. And I want to say that it was really encouraging and really great because many of them came from the Anglican community. But I do know that other folks are praying. Once a month, we're praying. People are praying. But we've got to back that prayer up with practical solutions and outcomes. Now, today's event is running all the way until 8 p.m., I believe. It's a long day. At the end of this long day in the evening, what do you hope will be? you'll be able to say, we have achieved this? This is what we get out of today. Yeah, I think it's very important that there are some positive outcomes. I think what I'm looking for is that, you know, the Bishop of London, 
um, Reverend Stephen Saxby, um, Canon Rosemary, could say that actually we have got a strategy, we've got some really good things that we could hang you know, on a coat hang, as it were, that we could work towards bringing people together, um, promoting good best practice, harnessing what we've got, and pushing the agenda to eradicate, to stop young people killing themselves or dying needlessly on our streets. As you said, you know, faith without works, it's it's dead, isn't it? That's what scripture shows us. But we we have been praying for an end to knife crime. Things have got worse. Aside from the action, do we need to change our prayer points? Do we need to be a bit more specific other than just, Lord, end this? I'm a man of prayer. I love prayer. This morning I was up at five o'clock praying with the bishop at five o'clock because I believe in prayer. I believe that there are things that are spiritual, but I also believe that things that are social and practical. I think we've been good at praying, but we haven't been good at working together. We haven't been good at collaboration. We haven't been good at synergy. And so what we have to do is to look at how do we collaborate? We've got to look at what we all bring to the table and how do we harness that to really respond effectively within our community. That's the missing puzzle that we have as a church. And I'm really excited because I've met lots of Christians who've, who've overcome theological issues, who've overcome, you know, traditional issues, and they've said, listen, we just want to work together. And I think we've got to harness that goodwill, harness that determination to make something positive happen. Overheard on the web. When I hear a good speech or interview, you know, the kind that gives you goosebumps or makes you want to salute, like in Will Smith's Independence Day speech. When that happens, I just have to share. I know I'm always asking people to share things with me, but I am the queen of that myself. And I got sent a clip from the real queen herself, and that is Viola Davis, who's the star of the series How to Get Away with Murder. She's also an Oscar-winning actress. Recently, a clip from a BBC interview about her new film Widows, which I really need to see, went viral. She explains, despite the opening scene being overlooked by most film critics, it still matters. I look at the way the film begins with me in bed with Liam Neeson, and we're kissing, and it's a sexualized kiss. And here I am, I'm dark, I'm 53, I'm in my natural hair, and I'm with Liam Neeson. I'm with what America would consider to be a hunk. And he's not my slave owner, I'm not a prostitute. It's not trying to make any kind of social or political statements. We simply are a couple in love. And what struck me about that in the narrative is that I've never seen it before. And you're not going to see it this year. You're not going to see it next year. You're not going to see it the year after that. And most people who look at it, most critics, most most critics, I will say, most cinephiles will probably not even acknowledge that as anything novel. They'll say, okay, so what? It's not making a political statement. So if it's not making anything, then why isn't it done? If we are indeed committed to inclusion and diversity, and we actually do see our people of color as the same as us, as, as our counterparts, then why can't you consider a character that maybe is not ethnic, 
ethnically specific, why can't you consider someone like me for it? If it's not a big deal, why hasn't it been done? You know, and sometimes I feel like the biggest political statements are the simplest. I would say that the biggest thing in my life at 53 is having the courage to live authentically. And that has very little to do with my status and has more to do with my internal courage and um, understanding my worth, my value as a human being. The So Av Podcast. so much for listening to another episode of the SOAF podcast. It goes by so quickly, doesn't it? Um, Now, I've got a bone to pick with some of you because I've been asked by a few people to send like a link, a reminder of the podcast episodes to them, which lets me know that you haven't subscribed because if you had, you'd get a reminder. So this is me moaning to say please subscribe and while you're at it rate and review I only accept five stars on this podcast so nothing less will do I'm joking I might accept a four but only if you leave a comment anyway I hope you enjoyed the episode get in touch on Twitter Instagram at Enor Adeogan if you feel you want to say a little bit more you can send an email to the SOAF podcast at gmail.com until next week bye bye